This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. Welcome to Retail Retold, everyone. Today, I'm joined by Joe Kahn, the founder and CIO of Condado Tacos. Welcome to the show. Christopher, thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So, Joe, why don't you tell everybody a little bit more about who you are and what you do? Yeah, happy, happy to. Uh, so my name is Joe Kahn. I'm the uh, founder uh, and chief uh, innovative officer of uh, Condado Tacos. Condado Tacos is a uh, fast casual, we call it next gen, uh, experiential uh, taco joints. Uh, we started eight years ago. We have uh, 39 locations as of last year. Uh, we're working on 12 this year, so we'll have a total of 51. Uh, we're just this high energetic um, taco, marg, queso, loving place that people just can't get enough of. Fantastic. So uh, bring me back in time, Joe. What, what was uh, Joe doing pre-Condado Tacos? Sure. Yeah. So I just turned 50 last year. I think I'm turning 51 soon. Jeez. I can't, I can't believe that. Um, but, you know, when I was uh, 16, I got my first job. It was at a place called Sizzler Steakhouse, if you remember those. Oh, yes. Yeah, I don't know if they're around anymore. I was a busboy. I believe, and uh, you know, part-time job, and uh, I made my first eight dollars that day, and I became a restaurant lifer. I couldn't get enough of the cash. So, for the last uh, <clears throat> thirty-five years, I've really just been in every aspect of the restaurant business: uh, server, um, bartender, management, general manager. I did some consulting, uh, back of house dishwasher, everything you could think of I did in the restaurant industry. And uh, when I was 38, I, I had the uh, chance uh, to start my own restaurant. Got it. Um, yeah. So let, let's talk about the, the restaurant space today. So <clears throat> I've, had a, I've had a couple of restaurant tours on lately and so i try not to talk about this topic but it seems like it's probably good lessons for everybody so you owned restaurants in this covid time period where we had shutdowns so what was the strategy during covid how did you approach it what did you do well you know at that time we had 20 five restaurants, 26. I don't even know what it was. It was, it was just frightening. I mean, I I was at a conference with a bunch of restaurant guys yesterday and all we talked about was this subject, but honestly, you know, the shutdown came, we made the decision to uh, shut down just like, you know, right after that first NBA game shut down, the world shut down. We, uh, we decided to close. And then first thing we did was, you know, uh, started strategizing. I mean, we all got together, the whole C-suite, you know, on a call, 
We all figured out what Zoom was all of a sudden because we didn't know what it was before. Sure. And, uh, you know, got on the phone. I was the, uh, well, no, I had a president at the time. I was still the CEO of the company. So I was still leading the company. My president was on the way out because we had just uh, done a private equity deal. And that was kind of the deal. So we were on the hunt for a new president to kind of take us to the next level. But I just kind of took over the reins. Uh, and me and my COO, Johnny Zila, who is a day one employee, started as a bartender next to me bartending in my restaurant and has taken uh, this company to a whole new level with me. Uh, we just started strategizing and talking and seeing what's going out there. So, you know, we shut down for about two weeks. And then, you know, we had to make the decision of, you know, we didn't know that you know, there was what was going to happen. So we, 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 we had to let everybody go, um, except for the C-suite. And, you know, with the promise that when the world opens up, everybody comes back, gets their back pay, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, what, what became evident was this. While we were strategizing and we were all just flailing because we didn't know what the hell was going on. We didn't know about PPP. We didn't know about this. We didn't know about that. We didn't know if we had enough cash to go, you know, and pay salaries. So it, it really came down to we as a company, the C-suite, made a decision to reopen about six weeks into it because... What I found was I was trying to get groceries. I was a guy that was so paranoid that couldn't go out even with a mask. Got it. And I, w I was like 90% of the people, I think, in the beginning, because there was so much misinformation out there that just said, you know, I, I saw that I couldn't get groceries for two weeks delivered. I go, we have to open. If there's people out there brave enough to go and open those doors, we have to. So we got a hold of all our managers, first of all. And uh, all the managers said, yes, I'm coming back. I said, well, we're going to do to go. And you know what's so funny, Christopher? We got so much hell for that. I'm like, but people can't eat. Like, how are they going to eat? We have to open. If grocery stores can't feed you, restaurants have to. So, you know, I think we made a sound decision. I thought that we were a great, you know, partner to our communities. And, and it needed to be done. So we opened. And you know what? It was exactly like I thought. There was so much demand, we couldn't even keep up with it. So wow. we we literally, and this is funny, but we were, I mean, our four, five managers in the restaurant were doing probably just as much in sales as when the world didn't shut down in to-go. So we did everything like convenient pickup for people that were brave enough, and, you know, came out to, we did our own delivery and then... You know, third party, of course, but it was just a grind. And these brave guys that that opened these doors, we were so grateful to. So it was pretty evident about six or seven weeks into it that we were going to be okay. So we dipped into our bank accounts. We did all the back pay for all the managers. All the, uh, you know, hourly employees were invited back if they wanted to come back and they wanted to do the to-go and all that kind of stuff. And we did their back pay and then we you know, bonused everybody and, and made everybody whole and above whole. And, uh, you know, the strategy was just feed people. And then, you know, what happened during the up and down, shut down, yeah. open, shut down, back and forth. But 
honestly, the six weeks were terrifying, but um, we made it through and uh, we were brave enough to, to do that. And uh, we had some really brave people that, that, that uh, are still, hopefully, most of them are still with the company that uh, did a great job. Excellent. Well, uh, that's a good story. So I'm curious, pre-pandemic, what, what was kind of like an average unit volume for you? Yeah, well, here's the interesting part. So right when we uh, did our private equity deal, uh, two weeks after uh, COVID happened, wow. <laughs> it was the largest deal they've ever done. Oh, my COVID. God. Yeah, you're going to love this story, dude. It's, it's hilarious. So um, we were doing about three, six. Wow. 3.6. And wow, that's we're, really. Yeah, now we're at 4.1. So the pandemic wow. actually helped us out because we had zero off-premise business at all. We, we, we didn't even believe in off-premise because we were so busy in the restaurants that we're like, oh, let's just keep up with this volume. We want to make sure that we can do this. But, uh, you know, the, the pandemic actually taught us how to do to-go and packaging. And it's funny because now if you go and look at, like, our scores, you know how they do, like, stars by that? We're actually one of the highest uh, out of all the platforms. We're, we sit at, like, a 4.8 for off premise. So it's incredible uh, wow. what happened. We, we, we went up about uh, seven, we gained about 7% or so. Yeah, it's amazing. Wow. Food track. So obviously the food travels pretty good. Yeah, it does. Yep. Yep. Tacos uh, travel well. The, we'll get into the private equity. That's interesting. Uh, the, sure. on the, on the private equity deal. So, you know, I think one of the topics everybody's talking about today that I'm curious about, you mentioned how you took care of your staff. And, and I think that was a really interesting mm-hmm. story you told there about the back pay. You said, you, I think you might have said, like, of course, I hadn't heard people actually giving back pay to the time off. So that was really yeah. interesting that you all did that. Yep. How's staffing today? You know, you read headline news. How's right. it going? How's the the people part of the business going right now? Sure. Well, Christopher, I, I'm not going to brag. I'm not going to say that, you know, we didn't have our challenges. But the reason that we did the back pay um, and dug into, you know, the owner's pockets and the new owner's pockets was because we have a different culture and that's what makes us successful we've been open for eight years at the end of this year we're going to be a 180 million plus company and to build something like that you have to have great culture and the culture starts with the people and this is what i talk about on every podcast every deal that i do everybody that i can preach from the mountaintops the people this is about the people it's not about just the tacos yeah we have craveable food yeah it's fantastic but it's really about the people so People always come first to my organization, and I had to do that. I gave up my salary because we only brought back so many people in the in the support center, which is our office. I gave up my salary for a long time so I could bring back, I think it was like 10 people or so. Wow. Um, you know, because the C-suite support center, we didn't need them because obviously, you know, until we got the restaurants up and going, it didn't matter, so... Um, but it's all about the people. And I just felt like it was necessary. 
And I don't think I'm alone. I'm sure there's other people out there, but that's just our MO. That's how we treat our people. Uh, you know, I have 10 original members that were all busboys, bartenders, servers that are now in the C-suites with me. And they are wow. the ones that have built this company with me. So that's our That's culture. amazing. Yeah. And, and hiring today? Hiring today is not as bad. Yes, we had our challenges, um, especially with the great resignation out there. But what we found was pandemic did a number on people. It really did. People quit. Even managers quit. They went to go work for something that was less stressful. And then they came back three months later because they were like, it's same anywhere. Um, but the hiring, hiring can be challenging. Once we get them in the door, we're fine. But we don't have a lot of turnover. And we hire from within. Our rate of hiring from within is about 66%, which is huge. That and is we're, huge. Very, we're very successful uh, with that because we don't just treat our employees like a number. We value our employees, and we value our employees' lives. I'll give you a couple of instances. The reason I started this company was because I felt like I was treated like a number in this, um, in this restaurant field. Um, so I made this company, this world that I could live in, where I felt like I was a valued member of society to the people I worked for, right? And I got paid well. I didn't have to have a college degree, which I don't, as a matter of fact. I'm a multimillionaire and I'm very successful without a college degree. So, and most people in the restaurant business, they don't all have degrees. I mean, it's, you know, it's thought of as that way, but it's not true. That's not how you should value a person's uh, uh, intelligence or, you know, work ethic off of that. So, you know, I pay people eight years ago, 20 bucks plus an hour in the kitchen. I still do. So we, we value our people. And once you get to know that, people just flock to us. So we don't have the challenges as much as other people do with hiring because we're starting to get a great name for ourselves, just like In-N-Out does. I think In-N-Out Burger values their employees and pays them about the same that we pay them, which is about the 90th percentile in the restaurant industry, which is way above what uh, anyone else does. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So I want you to thank you for that piece on the market and, and, and some of the stuff during COVID. Take me back to how this you ideated the idea of this restaurant and you know and getting into your first location. Yeah, sure. So okay, let's see. Well, I I ha always have to incorporate I I, this really, this journey started 10 years ago, Christopher. I, I had another company that I won't mention the name. Happened two years before this. And uh, my, my wife's friend uh, at the time um, had a restaurant space that went defunct. So we had a liquor license and a space. And she put me together with him because she knew I always wanted to open my own place. And, uh, and he goes, Okay, I think that's great. There's none of that in the neighborhood. He goes, well, why don't you think about what you want? And so I went home, uh, half a bottle of whiskey later, me and my wife, she was typing it all out. And I just sat down and went, this is what I want. This is my perfect restaurant that I want to build for myself. And it's funny because I look at that little two-page business plan. 
that's just ideas. You know, art on the wall, this, the tacos. It is still 90% true to what Condado is now. So anyways, me and the partner, you know, uh, got together. My wife left me $10,000 out of her 401k. I had $2,000 cuz he already owned the business. So, I mean, we did it we did it on a shoestring budget. I think he put, you know, a little bit more in. Um and, you know, opened the thing for god, I don't even know, $40,000. It was nothing. Nothing at all. Um but, uh, you know, it was great in the beginning, and then it wasn't great, and that's all I'll say about that. But, um, you know, I appreciate the guy. I appreciate the opportunity uh, for the building. And uh, it didn't work out, so we, you know, walked away. He has his own business, and uh, I restarted a year later. Uh, I found two great partners that uh, we each put uh, $100,000 in uh, and started which is still very cheap, restarted under the name Condado Tacos. Uh, my same concept that I built from before, uh, just a little better. I just added a few tweaks. And we opened in the short north of uh, Columbus uh, a year later. And the funny thing is, Christopher, you know real estate. So I found this building. I had to buy out um, you know, the assets, which were worthless, uh, liquor license and everything else. And then I was so cheap back in the day. I did all the work myself with like one other guy and uh, and then hired a couple of artists and put all this great artwork on the walls and set up the kitchen, which is really kind of easy back then because it was very little equipment and all that kind of stuff. Did all the work myself. And, you know, I opened the thing for probably $83,000 total and stuck the rest of the money in the bank because I was frightened that I was going to go under. Any, any minute, even though I had success with the other one. And, uh, you know, opened up and, and sold a dream to the employees. I said, listen, this did very well for me in uh, uh, where I moved from, Cleveland. And, you know, if you just give it some time and you believe in this, we're going to build an empire. We're going to build a legacy for all of us. We're going to build this amazing, craveable place, and we're going to have lines out the door. Well, it happened that way, but it took about six months. <laughs> they were they were like, uh, Joe, are you sure? Actually, it took a little more than six months. It took about 11 months. And at the 11-month mark, we started having a little success. I think we got in, we were at like 25000 a week. I remember a big celebration was 28000 We broke the $28,000 mark a week. And then all of a sudden, we hit thirty five, And I'm like, wow, this is... Incredible, 35 a week. Well, then we started getting busy, and I would bartend with this guy named Johnny Zila, who's my COO, Chief Operating Officer. And he, uh, he would tell me about his experiences in the restaurant business. He was taking a break, just bartending. He had owned a restaurant in Chicago. He had done multi-unit stuff with Red Robin, blah, 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 all over the place. And I go, you know what? You're so much better than me. I go, I've sold you the dream. I will work my ass off, but I want you to be in charge of this. And my promise to you is I'm going to make you a millionaire if you stick with this. And I'm going to make you a partner. And we're going to build an empire. And he took the challenge. Uh, he was in charge for about three months. And he turned to me in February and he goes, Joe, 
I'm telling you, by May, I'm going to put this thing at 100000 a week plus. I said, you're joking. He goes, nope. And literally, Cinco de Mayo, our first week, that we hit, we hit $104,000 that week. And then we were just off to the races. And after that, there was lines wow. around the building for a whole year until I uh, had the courage to like, well, not courage. I'm sorry. That's the wrong word. Until I found another space because I knew we were going to do another space. So the strategy with my uh, two other partners who were great partners, they were really just the money. A little bit of strategy on real estate and uh, putting my C-suite together and all that kind of stuff. But weren't restaurateurs was we weren't going to touch a penny because we knew we had lightning in a bottle. You know, they knew it from the last place and they knew it from, uh, you know, what happened about 14 months into the business. So we were very strategic and uh, didn't touch a dime, paid my COO, you know, double what I was being paid so he could feel good about what he was doing and bonus him and all that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, we got to the point where we were so popular that we moved uh, three quarters of a mile up the street, opened that by year two, and uh, had the same exact success. Wow. Uh, just lines out the door. Couldn't get enough. Yeah. Um, wow. So it's interesting because one of the things I find interesting is, you know, you're at, you're at, you're at did you say 39 locations today? Yeah, 39. So 39 locations today. That first one kind of moved around a bit. And right, like where you, you found you, you, it was, you started the business in Cleveland, you got proof of concept, you go to Columbus, you open up a location, right. got yep. so busy, you moved it down the road. Yep. Um, so bring me back to you left, you had the, you left the guy in Cleveland, you guys separated, you went your separate ways. And the location that you found in Columbus, was it like a freestanding building? Was it a, was it part of a shopping center? What was it? So it's funny, if you know Columbus, which you probably do, you probably yeah. know some stuff. It's right on the outskirts of an area called Short North. It connect, it's like that middle part that connects campus and Short North, which is kind of a hip area for people. So we were, I couldn't afford much. So it was uh, a freestanding building that had two concepts in it. I think at the time, there was nothing on the left. On the right, I took over an old gay bar, but it was just on that fringe where it's like semi part of the short north, semi not. Um, it was a great building. I saw it and I'm like, oh, this is it. But people were saying, no, I think it's just a little too far off. And I'm like, no, 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 no. It has to move this way. Eventually, I go, this is connecting OSU campus to short north. I go, it's, it's, it's going to happen eventually. I just got lucky enough, and I think I had the vision to see and go, the business that's in there right now is failing because of their concepts and their dedication. It has nothing to do with the building or the area. Yeah, it's not the location. It's not the location. So I thought, I thought it was a you know, great location, and, and that's where we went into. And um, how was dealing with that landlord telling him you're going to take this gay bar and turn it into a, you know, a Mexican restaurant? 
Well, to be quite honest, he was very happy. Um, <laughs> he was he was very happy because, um, you know, it wasn't that it was a gay bar. Uh, you know, there's very successful gay bars three three uh, blocks up. It was that this guy that was in the building just wasn't a good operator. I mean, you walked in the building and you looked at the ceiling and there were holes in the ceiling. It's like, why can't you take care of it? So the guy had no funds to do anything. He, the place was just a mess. So I think the landlord was very happy. Of course, he was you know, hesitant and we had to sign a, a guarantee. But my partners were happy to do that because they believed in me and they believed in the concept. Um, but no, I think the landlord was very happy. And you know what? The landlord's a good guy. Um, and I think it's probably one of his best, uh, best moves he ever did was put us in there. Cause I think we're doing maybe $2,000 a week and we we've made that area. So, and then you moved it still in Columbus, three quarters of miles down the road. What type of building was that? Well, Christopher, uh, I didn't move it. I added a second one. Oh, that was your second location. Yeah, so you, are you still second. in that first location? Oh yeah, for sure. Oh, oh. Yeah, yeah. Sorry oh, to so mislead that- you. Yeah, so that guy did, he did make out. That was, you're still oh, there yeah. 10 years later, eight years later. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but the new building was, you know, completely different. It was literally in the heart of the short north. Um, and, you know, a little close for my comfort, I thought back then, but it turned out it was a totally different demographic. We were getting it from all sides. So um, that building was actually... Uh, in the back, there was, it was freestanding, of course, or I shouldn't say freestanding. It was some retail in the front, in the back was a big park. And then, um, there was tenants up top. So it was a big building. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. We were kind of the anchor. They were just, uh, we were one of the first, if not the first there. So we took, you know, the right, the right corner, I guess. Left, left corner. Got it. So on the first one, when you, when you, when you saw the location, did, were you dealing, did you have to deal with the owner of the gay bar? And like you mentioned by his assets. Yeah. So you had to make a deal with that guy clearly. Yeah. I mean, listen, he didn't want to let the assets go for nothing, even though they were worthless. You know, there's a, a stage, a, DJ equipment, whatever else. <laughs> I tried to sell all of it. I got like $12 for it. I don't even yeah. know. It was probably worth $100,000. Um, but yeah, I had to buy the liquor license and then I had to buy his assets. Uh, he was okay to deal with. I mean, he was ready to go. He was losing, probably losing money. Was he open at the time or closed when you just, like, did you just walk in and say, listen, man, I can see the writing on the wall. Let me buy you out. <laughs> um, I, I looked at the space by the outside and I could see in a little bit and I go, this guy is not doing well. I literally, I think, knocked on the door and he answered. His name was Red. I think Red, I don't know why, just Red, but they called him Red. And uh, I go, are you guys open? He's like, uh, we're only open for about another month or so. We're not sure what we're doing. And I said, well... Can we talk? And he's like, oh, I just hired a broker. And I, so he gave me the broker's number, and I went through the broker. The broker was a piece of work to I'm deal sure. with, as, as they are, the rinky-dink brokers like that. But uh, I shouldn't say that. He's a nice guy. Nice guy, but he was, you know, 
was our first time getting to know each other. Um, but, uh, no, I mean, listen, it was all fine. It was a quick process. It was like okay. two, two weeks, barely any negotiation. And Got it. So you make a deal with him and then you call the landlord and say, I'm going to save you. I'm going to save you. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, we had to get sign off from the landlord. Yeah. The so, assignment. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we had to go through that. The landlord came and sat down with uh, me. I invited my partners down. They were the money, you know, not just the money. I call them the money, but they were much more. Um, they were a third of the money, I guess. Uh, but they were, they had their own money. I had nothing to guarantee. So they had to be there and they helped me negotiate the lease with the landlord. And, uh, I think he gave us a one year guarantee, one year rolling, something like that. It was really an easy, easy lease that much to negotiate, but I think he was happy to have, uh, those guys out. Amazing. Uh, well, cool story. I love that. Thanks, uh, I bet a lot of people don't know that the first Condado was actually once a gay bar. So that's a pretty cool story. <laughs> well, um, it was not just a, it was a, uh, it was a, a gay bar and a um, exotic uh, dancers. I think. Whoa. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Well, cool. very cool. Yeah. So let's fast forward, I guess five or six years yep. and now enter you're making a deal with private equity. Yeah. How'd that, how'd that all go down? What were you thinking? Cause I, I think this is an interesting point because as restaurant tours go, there's a couple different avenues that you see them go. Right. Especially at that point of like, I'm, you know, you said 12. So I guess at that point you're in the mid twenties locations, low twenties, you're doing good volume. They see the growth. And people either start to do one of two things. They either start franchising right, or they start looking to sell and potentially to private equity. Private equity loves restaurant business because cash flow, cash flow, heavy, consistent cash flow. Yep. So um, what was going on in your head as you were thinking about like scaling? And that's why people typically do one or the other. They want to scale this and explode it versus right. do one store every you know six months type of thing. Yeah. Well, you know, that's interesting. Uh, what's interesting about it was we were at about 13 stores. Believe okay. it or not, we just generated so much uh, cash flow. And I mean, our payback was less than a year on these. Wow. It was incredible. Um, but, uh, you know, never thought about franchising. In fact, I think franchising is the kiss of death, uh, especially if you don't have your infrastructure in place. And I was setting my infrastructure up by the second store, meaning my support center. All the money went to my CFO. I hired a CFO. I hired an HR director. I hired all these people that I needed, front-loaded before I got in there. Um, but private equity was the way to go, and it wasn't just about the money. It was more about the experience uh, from private equity on how to grow and how to scale. You know what I mean? So, yes, the money was nice, but I didn't sell very much of my stake. My other partners cashed out almost completely. Um, but, uh, no, private equity was the way to go. Uh, you know, that process, we, we, my CFO was with the place called City Barbecue, and he had just done a transaction. I'm familiar and, with that. Yeah. yeah. And uh, 
So he's really the one that taught me what the hell private equity was and how to build this thing and where we were going to go with our dreams. And so he had a broker named Ashish uh, from BMO at the time, uh, Bank of Montreal. And he gave him a call and said, hey, I'm working for this new concept. It's really special. Why don't you come take a look at us? Um, came and take a look at us. And, you know, we sat down. My partners were hesitant. And I was like, well, I think it's time to get the word out. So me and one of my partners went to New York with Ashish. We did just a little coming out teaser party, you know, kind of thing. And we met with a little road show. Yeah, we met with like, uh, I don't know, 20 private equity uh, guys. Just gave them little teasers, 30 minute teasers. I'll tell you the funny story, Christopher. The first person that entered the room, his name is Christopher Artinian, was with Beekman. Uh, Beekman uh, Private Equity out of New York. I fell in love with this guy. He was from Morton's. He was the ex-CEO. And he believed in culture. When he left that room, I go, we're going to end up with these guys. And we interviewed like 20 other firms and went through the whole process. It took a year and a half. And we ended up with Chris. And Actually, the funny story is I took him away from private equity. He's now my CEO. Oh, my goodness. I know. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. Yeah. Well, sometimes the private equity guys, they have like these hired gun CEOs because they're buying businesses. Yeah. And they when they buy businesses, sometimes they change management and they put their guys in. So right. you see that sometimes. But this is a little different of a scenario. You know, if you were doing three, six, right, a location, 13 locations, I mean, you know, they – they were probably looking like, oh my God, this is so young. And this guy's got like a 35, $45 million business. Like exactly. this is the, they gotta be, you know, they were chomping at the bit, I bet. Well, they, I mean, they, I think they all were, uh, but they believed in us more than the others, obviously, because, well, no, I mean, we had, it came down to five or six of them. We really believed in Beekman and especially Chris and John Triano. I really like John Triano, the founder of the uh, private equity firm. I, I'm still, he's just such a great guy, communicator, and follows through with his word. Um, you know, he's one of the owners of the Florida Marlins. He's just a great guy, just really down to earth. But um, yeah, they were all chomping at the bit, but I think they were smart. I mean, listen, they paid the highest uh, valuation they've ever paid, and now the business is worth six or seven times more than what it, they paid for in a short, yeah, in a short three years. So we thought we put one over on them. That's not the case. Uh, they put one over on us because they believed in us so much. We had no idea this thing would be as big as it was as fast as it was three years later now. So, and how are you thinking about what markets you're looking at? Like when I go to your website and I look at locations, yeah, you you're, you're in a bunch of different states. Yep. How do, how do you guys think about where you want to go next and what markets you're going into? Yeah, we're, we're very strategic. I mean, I have uh, Jason Siegler I hired uh, probably five years ago as the VP of real estate uh, and development. He uh, came from Brio Bravo. He was their real estate guy for all those years. Tremendous guy, tremendous mind, really honest, very down to earth and doesn't, uh, you know, overblow anything. He's very real about where we should go and numbers and all that kind of stuff. 
Uh, great guy, best in the business. I've never found somebody better than him. Uh, even private equity who deals has like five or six other concepts says that Jason's the best. But our strategy from the beginning was Midwest, secondary tertiary markets, because we don't want to go to a New York, a Chicago. They've seen things like us before, right? We didn't want to go there right away to do something like that. They wouldn't be impressed. You have to get your shit together. So, you know, it was really Midwest. So started out in uh, Columbus, so Ohio. And then we slowly filled up Ohio with a few. And then I knew that Pittsburgh was just close enough that they would maybe know our name. So I went to Pittsburgh. Then after Pittsburgh, I think I came back to Cincy. But the strategy is really, here's the interesting part, Christopher. We do our own distribution. We have a scratch fresh kitchen, our commissary that we is 26,000 square feet and we have our own trucks. We do everything ourselves. So we produce the food. We do our braises overnight, 14 hours, get in in the morning. We, you know, tear them apart. We do everything. We braise them. We cool them down. We do all this stuff. We sous vide our stuff, but then it's delivered to the restaurants from made to the restaurants within 18 hours. Wow. And one of our secrets to success and craveability is that we keep everything in a centralized location, not all of it, 80%, but it's done fresh every day and delivered to the restaurants versus them doing it in the restaurants. uh, You know, maybe the recipe changes just a little bit here and a little bit there. We don't let that happen. We want it to be consistent and craveable. but um, you so know, as you get bigger, you're going to need more commissaries. Clearly, you know, we think we could probably do about 150 uh, in this commissary. Yeah, we're super efficient. Wow. I mean, 90, 90. Well, I shouldn't say that. 70 percent is all fresh ingredients, fresh cold ingredients. So we're cutting and dicing and, you know, uh, parsley and making our guac and doing all this stuff. So, yeah, we can get a lot out of this uh we'll probably need two to three commissaries eventually but the strategy is you know right now midwest and now we're going as far as the south we're in nashville uh the strategy is to kind of fill up the right side of the united states without going to florida or texas right now because they're just a little too far but we're in alabama this year we're all the way up in upper or lower new york and buffalo uh we're going to the left st louis we're actually going to be in 12 states by the end of the year and 11 new 11 new markets I think this year. So the strategy is very well thought out. You know, we have an 11-hour radius with our trucks that we can drive because of all the laws. I think only one state uh this year we're going to have to keep a driver or drivers overnight. But, you know, so literally middle of the middle upper part of the United States to the right. And we just want to fill the right side of the United States before I think going back past Chicago and then trying to fill the the left side. Amazing. What a cool story. Thank you for sharing. I want anything else you want to tell us about the business, the food, anything, leave people's mouths watering before we, (laughs) before we end Joe, you know, again, our food is just so craveable. You know what? We did this huge study and uh, we're like, we're GMO free. We make it fresh every day, scratch kitchen, all this stuff. 
uh, so fresh, blah, blah, blah. And then we did this study, and people are like, I don't give a shit about it. Your food is so fucking craveable. They go, <laughs> they go I just want to drink the cheese. And the cheese is like white American and heavy cream and milk, like the simplest ingredients. They just they don't care about health. But uh, it's a very craveable, craveable product in a really fun environment. Uh, very moderately priced. I mean, it's the best 18 bucks per person you can spend. You cannot have a better time going out for 18 bucks per person. I guarantee you, anywhere, uh, at any restaurant. It's just uh, quite an experience. And we're very blessed that we have great people uh, that make this happen for people every day. Amazing. I want to take you to the last part of the show. We got three questions for you. Are you ready? Yes, sir. Let's do it. Question one. What extinct retailer do you wish would come back from the dead? Ooh, that's good. Um, Showbiz Pizza. I had huge memories growing up as a kid. I remember every Saturday, my dad would take me and my sister, and we would go, and they had, like, these animated animals uh, that would play a band. Uh, It's what Chuck E. Cheese, I think, turned into. And uh, there was little games all around, and... uh, Probably the worst pizza ever, but to us, it was the greatest. But I have very fond memories. I would love to see showbiz come back into existence. Next question. What item, what is the last item over $20 you bought in a store? Oh, gosh. Last item over $20 that I bought in a store. Uh, I think that that was probably uh, yesterday while I was stuck in the airport for uh, five hours because of the FAA outages. Uh, I think I bought these headphones that I'm wearing right now. Amazing. <laughs> Last question. If you and I were shopping at Target and I lost you, what aisle would I find you in? Oh, gosh. You'd definitely find me in the uh, the electronics aisle. Got it. Yep. Looking for something, either a game or uh, whatever new piece of technology is out there. Well, everybody, if... You want to have an amazing experience for 18 bucks a person, you got to check out Condado, Ta- Condado Tacos. Awesome. Christopher, thank you so much for having me. This thank was you. a blast. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Retail Retold. If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal that you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us at retailretold at dlcmgmt.com. This show highlights the stories behind the deals from all perspectives. So it doesn't matter if you are a retailer, broker, entrepreneur, architect, or an attorney. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.